You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on the 12th day of January, 2015. Welcome to episode 299 of the Corbett Report podcast, Solutions, Guerrilla Gardening. Now, I'm going to start today's podcast by assuming that everyone understands the food safety risks that are endemic in our modern 21st century industrial food production and distribution process. Horse meat found in yet more frozen dinners, and we'll grab this from naturalnews.com, a shocking food ingredient scandal that was first brought to light in Ireland back in January is now spreading across Europe as major food suppliers continue to be exposed for selling food products tainted with horse meat. Aldi, Tesco, and numerous other major food retailers throughout the UK and Europe have apparently been unknowingly selling frozen meals and other processed food products that contain up to 100% horse meat, despite being labeled as containing 100% beef. My friend David Lake sent this to me on Facebook. And I t- <laughs> why is the McDonald's website so scary? And it just has this purple square. And I, and I was thinking, well, I, I don't go to the McDonald's website ever. So I, I wouldn't know, probably because it's McDonald's, right? But then I clicked on it because I was like, yeah, why is it so scary? I wonder, wonder why it's so scary. Let's go find out. Look at this. <laughs> Look at <laughs> I'm sorry, but look at this. (laughs) Our food, your questions. This is the homepage of the English version of the McDonald's website. So this is what people in America are going to see when they go to McDonald's. First and foremost, this is McDonald's.com. Our food, your questions. Look at these questions, which are eerily floating around in this purple ether like some kind of JavaScript they put on here, a little ghost just floating around. The first thing I saw, because I guess, I don't know, it was just the first thing my eye was drawn to, are there worms in your in your beef? <laughs> ew. Ew. <laughs> God. Last week, Shanghai state-owned Dragon TV investigated a Shanghai-based food processor that works with Yum Brands, Inc., the supplier for such hot cuisines as KFC, Pizza Hut, and McDonald's. They took footage of workers using meat that fell on the floor, as well as mixing several months-old expired meat with fresh meat before giving it to Yum's local division, Yum's number one business unit. The same report said that staff at the faculty allegedly kept two record books. One was doctored for the benefit of any inspectors that dropped by. The supplier, Shanghai Husle Food, is a unit of the OSI group, an American food producer. 80% of prepackaged foods in America are banned in other countries. If you or your kids enjoy prepackaged convenience foods commonly found in corporate grocery stores across the U.S., such as Fruit Loops, which of course should always be tipped off that fruit is spelled F-R-O-O-T in Fruit Loops. Swanson Dinners, Mountain Dew, Frozen Potato, and Bread Products. You may think twice before purchasing them after hearing what they contain. Dangerous chemicals that other countries around the globe have deemed toxic to the point that they are illegal and companies are fined hundreds of thousands of dollars for including them in food products. 
and the latest food scandal to disturb Chinese consumers' concerns cattle found living in and eating from a garbage landfill. Gerald Zernstein grinds his own hamburger these days. Why? Because this former USDA scientist, now whistleblower, knows that 70% of the ground beef we buy at the supermarket contains something he calls pink slime. Beef trimmings that were once used only in dog food and cooking oil, now sprayed with ammonia to make them safe to eat, and then added to most ground beef as a cheaper filler. But the food safety issues are only the most glaring aspects of the problem with our modern industrial food production process. Far fewer of us are aware of some of the inherent structural instabilities of the system as it exists. Like the geopolitical ramifications of multinational corporations acting to ensure their interests in politically volatile sections of the globe. Well, why does Chiquita Banana have anything to say about whether or not Congress passes a bill to, in support of the 9-11 victims? What does Chiquita Banana have at stake here, and why are they opposing it? Why are they spending almost three-quarters of a billion dollars lobbying Congress to oppose the 9-11 victims' bill? That's a big question. Chiquita Banana. Well, the largest banana... Uh, company in the world, but I mean, we're talking about bananas here, right? Um, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, the JASTA bill, which would allow for families of terrorism victims to sue uh, for civil liabilities against those found to have supported terrorist organizations. And this is basically so that the victims of 9-11 can sue Saudi Arabia and companies within Saudi Arabia who have given uh, material support to Al-Qaeda. That's what this is about for the 9-11 victims, but it also includes in the bill any organization on the United States list of terrorist organizations, which includes uh, a a militia organization in Colombia, which Mm. is on that list that Chiquita Banana has given lots of payments to, essentially for protection. And so um, outraged supporters of this bill, uh, they uh, are pointing out Bob Goodlatte, the representative who is on the Judicial Committee, who is the one standing in the way of this bill moving forward. Why would a congressman stand in the way of a bill supporting the 9-11 victims in favor of Chiquita Banana, who wants to stop it? So the... um, The victims are saying this, the path to justice for me and the other 9-11 family members and survivors is being blocked by a banana company. I think Chiquita should should mind their own bananas and let justice be served. That's Terry Strada. Her husband was killed in the World Trade Center. Or the domestic political maneuvering that inevitably takes place to situate the big food corporate lobbyists in the heart of the food safety and regulatory establishment. That a former Monsanto scientist should find himself in charge of a specially created post at the very journal that published two landmark studies questioning the safety of that company's products should surprise no one who is aware of the Monsanto revolving door. This door is responsible for literally dozens of Monsanto officials, lobbyists, and consultants finding themselves in positions of authority in the government bodies that are supposedly there to regulate the company and its actions. This list of officials includes Linda Fisher, a senior EPA official who later became Monsanto's VP of Government and Public Affairs, Michael Taylor, 
Obama's deputy FDA commissioner, who also served as Monsanto's VP for public policy, and U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who served as a corporate lawyer for Monsanto in the 1970s. These positions of influence have been used to help Monsanto and its biotech peers obtain an FDA ruling which asserts that GMO foods are not substantially different from non-modified foods, win approval for their products from regulators by self-sponsoring studies with almost identical methodologies to the Seralini study that was just retracted, and pass favorable legislation like the Monsanto Protection Act, preventing the company from being taken to federal court in the event that GMOs are discovered to be harmful to human health. But lesser known as Section 735 of the bill, officially titled the Pharma Assurance Provision, but since nicknamed the Monsanto Rider or the Monsanto Protection Act. The provision protects large biotechnology companies like Monsanto from being taken to federal court should a genetically modified organism be discovered as being harmful to the consumer. Some Congress people argue that the provision was a necessary concession in order to pass the spending bill to prevent a total shutdown of the federal government. Or the vulnerability to disease, blight, extreme weather, and other problems of natural variability caused by the pressure on farmers to get on board with corporate farming practices and techniques. Getting on board means farmers stop practices that keep soil healthy and go for single crops. Livestock that used to be raised on the farm get crammed into polluting factories. To keep this unnatural system going, these farmers now buy expensive inputs, all from ever fewer corporations demanding ever-rising prices. It's a quick addiction. Pests become resistant, so you've got to use more chemicals. Livestock becomes sicker, so you've got to use more drugs. Soil loses its natural fertility, so you've got to use more chemical fertilizer. Or even the direct deaths caused by the crippling debt burdens resulting from the economics of modern industrial food production. It is a time of despair for hundreds of thousands of farmers. At this cotton auction, prices are low and they keep falling. Bagwan Rao has only received a few hundred pounds for his crop. He tells me he's taking on a lot of debt just to buy next year's seeds. Across India, farmers are struggling to keep up with a country driving forwards at a rapid pace. Kamala Sirtam is now a widow. Her husband is one of many farmers who've given up and committed suicide. Our husbands commit suicide out of desperation and the widows have to bear the burden of feeding and clothing and educating the children and living this hard life. Suicides have to be stopped, otherwise we will all be widows out here. A few miles away in another village and the cremation of another suicide farmer is taking place. It is a different widow, but a familiar story. More than a quarter of a million farmers have killed themselves in the last 16 years in India. That's one every 30 minutes. There are also the inherent dangers posed by the insane practice of shipping foods halfway around the world so that we can eat produce that isn't in season locally or isn't even available locally. This process is not just insanely, massively inefficient, 
It also poses actual, real threats to national security. And of course, by national security, I'm not invoking the specter of the national security that are that's pimped by the War on Terror pundits or their brethren in the ranks of government in the Department of Homeland Security or what have you. I'm of course talking about real national security to the extent that that idea really exists. And for one example of that, let's turn to my country of residence, Japan, which for centuries was more or less closed to the outside world with only a few isolated ports open for international trade. And despite that, the Japanese population did very well in feeding themselves on the traditional Japanese diet of rice and fish and vegetables, which not only was very healthy and led to, of course, the longest-lived peoples on the planet, but also was uh, it was capable of, uh, the Japanese people were capable of providing for their own food security. Fast forward to the 21st century, and now changes, not only changes in diet, which are taking place, but also changes in the infrastructure undergirding the global food production process are cha changing the dynamics of that ability for this country to feed itself. So now, the official statistics from the Japanese government are that the Japanese uh, food supply is now 40% domestic and 60% from foreign sources. That is to say, 60% of the food that's eaten here on a daily basis comes from abroad, which is fine enough, all things being equal, but what happens in the event of disaster or uh, war or sanction or blockade or even just rising transportation costs, all of that directly impacts the ability of people here to actually feed themselves on a daily basis. And the more this process extends out, the more removed the population of Japan or any other country is from the days in which they were able to provide 100% of their own dietary requirements. All of these conditions, all of them taken together, really make one wonder how it is possible for such an insane system to ever come into being in the first place. It is almost as if this is the end point of a coordinated agenda plotted amongst multinational corporations and billionaire philanthropists in order to engineer a system that maximizes profits and power for the few and minimizes it for the many. And it's not just a question of economics and profit in the monetary sense, it's also, of course, a question of centralization of power, with now just a handful of big agri-corporations wielding enormous control over the vast majority of the world's food supply. And if it seems like this is the end point of such a plot or agenda, well, as we've detailed on this podcast in the past, it is. In 1966, the Rockefeller Foundation was joined by the considerable financial resources of the Ford Foundation, another U.S. private tax-exempt foundation which enjoyed intimate ties to the U.S. government, intelligence, and foreign policy establishment. Together with the Ford resources, the Rockefeller Foundation's Green Revolution went into high gear. That year of 1966, the government of Mexico along with the Rockefeller Foundation set up the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center. The center focused its work on a wheat program, which originated from breeding studies begun in Mexico in the 1940s by the Rockefeller Foundation. Their efforts in food and agriculture received a boost that same year when U.S. President Lyndon Johnson announced a drastic shift in U.S. food aid to developing countries under PL 480, 
namely that no food aid would be sent unless a recipient country had agreed to preconditions which included agreeing to the Rockefeller agenda for agriculture development, stepping up their population control programs, and opening the doors to interested American investors. In 1970, the Rockefeller's Norman Borlaug won the Nobel Prize. Interestingly enough, it was not for biology, but for peace, the same prize Henry Kissinger was to receive several years later. Both men were also protégés of the influential Rockefeller circles. In reality, the Green Revolution introduced U.S. agribusiness into key developing countries under the cover of promoting crop science and modern techniques. The new wheat hybrids in Mexico required modern chemical fertilizers, mechanized tractors and other far farm equipment, and above all, they required irrigation, which meant pumps driven by oil or gas energy. The Green Revolution methods were suitable only in the richest crop areas, and it was deliberately aimed at the richest farmers, reinforcing the old semi-feudal latifundist divisions between wealthy landowners and poor peasant farmers. In Mexico, the new, the new wheat hybrids were all planted in the rich, newly irrigated farm areas of the Northeast. All inputs, from fertilizers to tractors and irrigation, required petroleum and other inputs from advanced industrial suppliers in the United States. Oil and agriculture joined forces under the Rockefeller aegis. Now, obviously, that is just a tantalizing hint towards a real analysis of the underlying structure and foundation of that plot, of that agenda, which, as I, as I say, we have outlined before, so I will direct you for more information in the general sense to that particular episode of the podcast, episode 241, The Truth About the Gene Revolution, and in particular, I will direct you to the book that we were just listening to a passage from, Seeds of Destruction by William Engdahl, a very, very good book on this matter and how the Green Revolution and the Gene Revolution are both being used exactly in furtherance of that plot, of that agenda, for the centralization of control in the hands of a very few interests. But, as always, the point is that it is easy, or at least not exceedingly difficult, to itemize and document and detail the various aspects of the problem with the system as it exists, but it is much more difficult to do something about those problems. After all, doing something to address the problems requires action, and action requires effort, and who wants to put in the effort? But there are two points to be made here, the first point being quite simple and straightforward, namely that there are things that we can do, both ourselves individually and in our communities, to address these problems, or at least some of these problems, in significant ways. More on that in a moment. The second point is slightly more subtle, and it is simply that there is a psychological barrier that must be confronted before people can even accept the idea that something can or even should be done about these problems. And that psychological barrier is the process of normalization. As human beings, we have a tendency to simply accept the systemic conditions of our life especially conditions that we've been born into and raised in our entire lives. Of course you have to go to a supermarket to buy products that you can't make at home with lists of ingredients you can't pronounce from multinational conglomerates you know nothing about. How else can we possibly feed ourselves? It doesn't 
even matter at the end of the day how many facts, figures, or statistics you quote at somebody to expose the lies of the big agri-corporate lobby. The Corbett Report presents Five GMO Myths Busted. Number five, GMOs feed more people. Contrary to what the biotech giants say on their industry-sponsored websites, GMO crops do not produce greater yields. A comprehensive 2009 report by the Union of Concerned Scientists demonstrated that GMO soybean and corn produced no increase in intrinsic yield over conventional soybean and corn. But even if future improvements were able to increase yields, a 2008 study demonstrated that organic farming methods with little or no chemical fertilizer and pesticide use was able to increase yield by 116%. But there's no money to be made for the international agrochemical companies by citing that research, so the public continues to be told that GMOs, which do not increase yield, are necessary to end world hunger. Number 4. GMOs reduce pesticide use. Again, despite what the chemical companies who are spearheading the GMO revolution are telling you, these GMOs are requiring farmers to buy more of their chemical pesticides, not less. A 2012 paper concluded that the rise of glyphosate-resistant superweeds in the wake of the GMO revolution has actually increased pesticide use in the last 15 years by 183 million kilograms, or 7%. The study estimated that if new strains of GM corn and soybeans are approved for commercial use, herbicide use could increase by a whopping 50%. Still, you have to admit it's a good business move for the chemical companies that produce the pesticides to also create the GMO crops that require more pesticides. Number 3. There is no scientific proof of adverse health effects from GMOs. This is one of the most disingenuous claims of the GMO PR campaign. In reality, the FDA doesn't even test the safety of GMO crops. Instead, all GMO foods are assumed to be safe unless there is already evidence to the contrary. In other words, the FDA relies on self-reported data from the companies that manufacture the crops as to their safety. Even worse, due to legal and copyright restrictions surrounding GMO patents, independent scientists have to ask the biotech company's permission before publishing research on their products. As a result, Almost all of the long-term animal feeding studies that have ever been conducted on GMOs have been carried out by the biotech companies themselves, on their own rules, and with their own standards of reporting. What few independent studies have been conducted have shown a range of adverse health effects, from reduced fertility to immune system dysfunction, liver failure, obesity, and cancer. Yet still, for some reason Obama's food czar Michael Taylor refuses to make FDA testing of GMO safety mandatory. I wonder if it's because he used to be the vice president of Monsanto. Number 2. There is no difference between genetic engineering and traditional breeding techniques. Argue with a GMO proponent long enough, and they will eventually try to tell you that there is no difference between conventional breeding techniques and genetic engineering, except for the time frame involved. What used to take dozens of generations can now be accomplished in a laboratory in a short time, they say. But this is not true. Conventional breeding takes one strain of a certain crop, such as corn, and breeds it with another strain of that crop. Genetic engineering takes genetic material from one species, such as soil bacteria, and inserts it into a different species, such as corn. This can be done by a variety of techniques, such as the use of gene guns to fire the genetic material into the cell of the target organism, 
an inherently imprecise process that leads to random and unintended genetic combinations. To say that this is the same process as conventional plant breeding is simply a flat-out lie. Number 1. Labeling GMOs is a bad idea. For some reason. The argument for why companies should not have to label GMOs is not an argument at all. The biotech giants and their PR fronts merely say that the public is so stupid that they don't deserve to know what they're eating because it would scare them. This is the sum total of the argument. On the other hand, are people who believe it is their right to know what they are eating, every bit as much as ingredients and dietary information labeling have long been standardized. The logic is simple enough for a 14-year-old girl to understand, but evidently not a fully grown man. Observe. And just to clarify, GMOs, it's a genetically modified organism, and it's where they take the DNA from a species such as a, it can be like bacteria, virus, um, animal, or even from a plant, and they insert it into the DNA of another species to introduce a new trait. For instance, a common trait is pesticide producing. So they'll make the crops pesticide producing, but they haven't adequately tested, and Monsanto's longest study is 90 days. That really doesn't determine how long-term it's going to affect our health, the environment, and even our entire ecosystem. Yeah. You know, saying Monsanto's testing in 90 days is a little uh, mislabeling it because many other organizations, including it sounds like some ones you're involved in, do much more testing. So a product comes to market, many people test it, including the government. So Monsanto knows that about food. Actually, um, can I just, in Health Canada nor the FDA do any independent studies, and they rely only on the very studies provided by the companies that stand to gain by their approval, like Monsanto. For more news and information, please follow the RSS feeds at CorbettReport.com, subscribe to this YouTube channel, or follow us on Twitter, at CorbettReport. As I say, it doesn't even necessarily matter how many facts or figures or statistics you are able to quote to back up the point that this is a problem, that these problems do exist, that they need to be addressed. People will still tend to go along with the status quo until they are snapped out of their conditioning. We need to denormalize the industrial food production process. We need to understand it is an insane system. It is not natural. It is not the way that humans have lived their lives for almost the entirety of human history. And in effect, we are engaged in a giant, uncontrolled experiment, a real-world experiment, with the most basic building blocks of our life and our health. And this experiment is one that we are not even necessarily conscious is taking place, let alone voluntary participants in. So perhaps the best way to denormalize this insanity is with simple, plain-spoken truth. The types of truths dealt by people like Joel Saladin, a third-generation American farmer who lectures and advocates for natural uh, processes and techniques that supplement the already existing natural systems involved in the agricultural process, rather than the chemical biotechnology and other types of manipulation of the anti-natural processes represented in the big agri-corporate farming process structure. So I will at this point direct you to a lecture that we're going to listen to a clip of that uh, Joel Salatin delivered, entitled simply, Folks, This Ain't Normal. We have abandoned 
historically normal eating. I'm a big believer that if it wasn't available before 1900, you probably shouldn't eat it. <laughs> you know, if it wasn't available for grandma, it probably isn't worth eating. You know, and we can all be very thankful that hot dogs were introduced at the 1890 World's Fair. <laughs> I mean, just slipped in right there under the wire, right? I mean, for the first time in human history, the average American eats many times a day food that has ingredients that you can't pronounce. We've never tried that before. Or food that you can't make in your kitchen. You ever try making high fructose corn syrup? Or monosodium glutamate? Or, you know, steroate, hypoxiglate, you know, whatever, you know? I mean... You can't make that in your kitchen. We're a guinea pig culture. And the thing that I'm trying to express is that, that we have short attention spans, short memory spans. I mean, do you know that, that, that just as recently as like 30 years ago when we started selling these pastured chickens, you couldn't go to a supermarket and buy a boneless, skinless breast. If you had a recipe that had boneless, skinless breast, you had to go get a chicken and a knife, imagine that, a knife, and a cut, and you had to dissect that bird. Imagine that. You had to separate that thing, and then you took the other pieces, and you put them in for stock and all that, all right? Today, 50% of our customers don't even know a chicken has bones. I mean, <laughs> they think these boneless, skinless breasts are just out here, you know. <laughs> It's like we go out and pick them like cherries off a tree, you know. And we've got to explain to people, ma'am, do you understand that, that, that chicken nuggets in the shape of Dino's the dinosaur is not a muscle group on a chicken? <laughs> you know, we don't have domestic larders anymore. You know, the food is all in some warehouse. The average American goes to the supermarket six times a week. Imagine, uh, imagine just in 1946 is the first supermarket that came. Imagine in 1945, you couldn't go to a supermarket. And there are people alive today that can remember that. Scarcely a generation removed. You know, and, we, and, we, and we went enamored of everything sterile and static and mechanical. I mean, even to where we raised a generation of, of, infamil, of, of asthmatic sufferers on Infamil and Similac during the 25 years that our culture summarily decided that, you know, that, that breastfeeding babies was Neanderthal and barbaric. I've often thought, you know, the greatest resource loss in our whole culture was that time when all those breasts didn't get used. I mean, it was a, it was a terrible, terrible resource loss. <laughs> you know, who would have thought in the late 1950s and early 60s that by 1970s we'd have La Leche League and Lamaze and a, and a new generation of dads-to-be that wanted to go in and see it and not taste like Dick Van Dyke, you know, outside the waiting room. And so our culture has gradually begun to awaken and this whole local food integrity food tsunami is a pendulum a soul revival if you will awakening of wanting to find the heritage the acre the the anchor and the meaningful thing of life what is it that has glued civilizations together and i'm suggesting that these patterns these ecological patterns these social patterns and 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 culinary domestic arts arts and the family table and and using the kitchen as the first 
uh, chemistry lab, you know, you know what happens when you add this to this. In the first uh, mathematics lab, a quarter teaspoon and a half a cup. And, and to learn that fractions are part of an integrated life, to, to view that, that integrated whole of the domestic and the local and the familial into life as the springboard of reality rather than just a segregated hubris-sponsored wiggle your thumbs in front of a computer screen like I've got the world by the tail, baby, and I can just make it do whatever it wants. You know what? The world is bigger than you and it's bigger than me and it's time that we teach our kids gardening and kitchen skills so that they learn that there's something bigger than just a computer and a micro screen and icons that jump around at their little wiggles. Okay, okay, James, we get it. There's a problem, but but what can I do about it? I live in a small apartment in an urban center, or I live in a little house with a tiny little lawn. What am I going to be able to actually do about this? Well, fret not, my urban-dwelling uh, brethren. Your limitations are really only excuses in your own mind for not beginning the steps towards food independence, and they may be baby steps at first, but there is no reason why we cannot have abundance even within our urban confines, a point I detailed in an eye-opener report not so long ago. For a generation that has been raised on processed foods and microwave dinners, it may be hard to imagine that any alternative to these products are available. For those who are interested in sourcing healthy alternatives to the chemical concoctions that pass for food these days, there are, as always, a host of excuses for why they can't buck the status quo and say no to the food conglomerates that control so much of our modern food supply. It's too expensive to buy fresh organic foods. It's too time-consuming to prepare foods from scratch. There isn't enough time or space to grow your own fruits and vegetables. Ironically, as more and more people fall through the cracks economically, with a record 47 million Americans now relying on food stamps to help keep food on the family table, the apathy and inertia around these issues is beginning to fade. In the last several years, we have seen a resurgence in the concept of victory gardens and urban gardening generally, as millions of people around the globe begin to rediscover the practicality, not to mention the simple joys, of growing their own food. In fact, as some of these families have shown, the space limitations of urban environments need not be an impediment to the truly dedicated urban gardener. Drivers whizzing past on the 210 freeway through Pasadena have no idea that a stone's throw away from the fast lane is a lush but tiny Eden, a 4,000 square foot farm. It not only feeds a family, but revolutionizes the idea of what can be done in a very unlikely place, the middle of a city. This is city living, but I brought the country to the city uh -huh. rather than have to go out to the country. I just imported it. 63-year-old Jules Dervais started this backyard farm 10 years ago. It's a deliberate throwback to the storied days of self-reliant rural America. Sustainable and dense. On their 4,000 square feet, they raise 400 varieties of vegetables, fruits, and edible flowers. 6,000 pounds a year, enough to feed themselves with plenty left over. In fact, 
If you, like me, live in a relatively safe, clean, friendly, temperate environment that's good for growing, and you have a little plot in the back garden where you can do this type of gardening, then you are already uh, significantly far ahead in the game compared to some people who live on some of the meanest streets on the planet and are still doing more than you, or at any rate, myself, are doing to take control of their own food supply. And for an example of that, one need look no further than self-styled guerrilla gardener Ron Finley, who, despite living in the mean streets, the infamous streets of south-central Los Angeles, is still doing his part to make those streets a little less mean and a little more livable. Just like 26.5 million other Americans, I live in a food desert, South Central Los Angeles, home of the drive-through and the drive-by. Funny thing is, the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys. People are dying from curable diseases in South Central Los Angeles. For instance, the obesity rate in my neighborhood is like five times higher than, say, Beverly Hills, which is like probably eight, ten miles away. I got, I got tired of, of, of seeing this happening. And I, I wonder, how would you feel if you had no access to healthy food? If every time you walk out your door, you see the ill effects that the present food system have on your neighborhood? I see, I see wheelchairs bought and sold like used cars. I see dialysis centers popping up like Starbucks. And I figured, <laughs> this has to stop. <laughs> so so I, I, I figured that the... The problem is the solution. Food is the problem, and food is the solution. Plus, I got tired of driving 45 minutes round trip to get an apple that wasn't impregnated with pesticides. So what I did, I planted a food forest in front of my house. It's on the strip of land that we call a parkway. It's like 150 feet by like 10 feet. The thing is, it's owned by the city, but you have to maintain it. So I'm like, cool. I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> since, I, since it's my responsibility and I got to maintain it, this is how I decided to maintain it. So me and my group, L.A. Green Grounds, we got together and we started planting my food for us, fruit trees, you know, the whole nine, for vegetables. What we do, we're, we're a pay-it-forward kind of group, where it's composed of, like, gardeners from all walks of life from all over the city, and it's completely volunteering. Everything we do is free. And in the garden, it was beautiful. And then somebody complained. The city came down on me. <laughs> and, they, and basically gave me a citation saying that I had to remove my garden, which this citation would turn into a warrant. And I'm like, come on, really? A warrant for planting food on a, on a piece of land that you could care less about? <laughs> and I was like, cool, bring it. Because this time it wasn't coming up. So L.A. Times got, got hold of it. Steve Lopez did a story on it and, and um, talked to the councilman. And one of the Green Grounds members, they put up a, a petition on change.org. And with 900 signatures, we were a success. We had a victory on our hands. The, my councilman even called and, uh, and said how they endorse and love what we're doing. I mean, come on, why wouldn't they? L.A. leads the United States in vacant lots that the city actually owns. They own 26 square miles of vacant lots. 
That's 20 central parks. That's enough space to plant 700 million, <laughs> 725 million tomato plants. Why in the hell would they not okay this? Growing one plant will give you 1,000, 10,000 seeds. Okay. When $1 worth of, of green beans will give you like $75 worth of produce. It's like my, it's my gospel. I'm telling people, grow your own food. Growing your own food is like printing your own money. I read. Thank you. See, I have a legacy in South Central. I, I, I grew up there. I raised my sons there. And I refuse to be a, a part of this manufactured reality that was manufactured for me by some other people, and I'm manufacturing my own reality. See, I'm an artist. Gardening is my graffiti. I grow my art. Just like a graffiti artist, where they beautify walls, me, I beautify lawns, parkways. I, I, I use the garden, the soil, like it's a, a piece of cloth. And the, and the plants and the, and the trees, that, that's my embellishment for that cloth. You'd be surprised what, 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 what uh, the soil could do if you let it be your canvas. You just couldn't imagine how amazing a sunflower is and how it affects people. So what, what, what happened? I, I have witnessed my garden become a tool for the education, a tool for the transformation of my neighborhood. To change the community, you have to change the composition of the soil. We are the soil. You'd be surprised how kids are affected by this. Gardening is the most therapeutic and defiant act you can do, especially in the inner city. Plus, you get strawberries. <laughs> if that isn't enough to convince you that this can be done anywhere, then I'm not sure what can convince you of that fact. And again, this doesn't mean that necessarily tomorrow you're going to go out and grow a garden that will completely provide for you, your family, your friends, your neighbors, and everyone else overnight. Obviously, this is a very difficult process of detaching ourselves from a system that has been created around us expressly for the purpose of making it as convenient as possible to go along with the status quo. It is much easier to just go to the supermarket and buy a frozen food dinner and microwave it for your, uh, for your family than it is to actually grow and prepare ingredients from scratch, obviously. And it doesn't mean that this has to be done all at once or 100%. It means it can be done incrementally in stages, and those stages, those baby steps, are still revolutionary. So... There are a couple of th ways that we can approach this uh, question from a very practical perspective. What can actually be done? Uh, it, and and how, do, how do you actually start getting involved with this? If you, like myself, are not particularly gifted when it comes or knowledgeable when it comes to gardening, how do you even begin to get involved with this? Well, there are a couple of things to say here. First is that autodidacticism is your friend, and that's a word worth keeping in mind. Autodidact, of course, is someone who is self-taught. And in this day and age, it is 
It has never been easier. You have never had to do less work to actually inform and educate yourself than ever before in human history. You don't even have to go to the library to go and look things up anymore. You can do it sitting in your pajamas at home. So welcome to the age of online learning, as I'm sure if you're watching the Corbett Report podcast or listening to it, you are probably already aware. But it doesn't mean that this is something that has to be done individually and like Arnold Schwarzenegger in uh, in uh, in twins, like as some sort of genius who only learns things from books and knows nothing about the real world. Uh, this is something that can be done, of course, in community with those around us, the people who we are going to be relying on in one way or another. Not No man is an island, and we're all going to have to, in some way, source things from those around us, go to the farmer's markets, meet people uh, who are likewise interested in this process of detaching yourself more and more from the systems of control represented by the global food industrial food production system. And as a case example of that, again, this is not just pie-in-the-sky talk. This is something that is being done by real individuals right now. As a case in point, we're going to highlight something that we highlighted on the most recent edition of New World Next Week with James Evan Pilato. We talked about... Uh, Brock West of APPerspective.net and his community garden journal that he is keeping on that blog right now as part of his commitment to this process of finding solutions rather than simply focusing on problems. And so he has recently posted up week one, the first introduction of his community garden journal, in which he writes, quote, we have for many years avoided as much as possible buying from the major supermarket chains who, despite their slick commercials and PR campaigns, aren't so fussed about providing the best quality and most nutritious produce. I've long been inspired by DIY, DIY gardeners and organic farmers who genuinely care about what they grow and whose aim it is to provide the healthiest, nutritious produce possible for their customers and community. It's with this in mind that I finally decided late last year to volunteer at the at my local community garden. I, like many out there, am a notorious black thumb when it comes to growing anything, and like most things in life, the only real solution is to get those hands dirty, literally in this case, and start learning by doing. I have already learned so much from our community garden guru, Marina, pictured below, and there are still barrel loads more still to discover. Once again, that's an, uh, just a, a short passage from the most recent Community Garden Journal of Brock West, and I'll throw in some of the pictures there uh, on the video of this podcast so you can take a look at some of the what, what he's working with and what he's already managed to harvest after the, uh, the first week uh, getting his hands dirty, as it were. And of course, the key point here is, again, this is not something that has to be done in isolation. There are all sorts of community gardens and people in your community who are no doubt already doing this that can be vi vital and valuable sources of information when it comes to this. And in some cases, you may be even lucky enough to have various initiatives or, or uh, community groups and things that are already working to help people in this regard. One that I highlighted in uh, uh, the Corporate Report member newsletter back in August of this year is based in Austin, Texas, and it is called the Food is Free Project, which is a, uh, a, a, a community project, a nonprofit community building and gardening movement which helps communities organize free community gardens using salvaged resources and offering free harvests to the community. And the project makes use of something called drought-tolerant wicking bed gardens 
which are low-maintenance gardens that only require watering once every two to four weeks. So extremely low-maintenance for people who are who are busy and do live difficult and, and trying lives. And I understand people work hard, long days and don't necessarily want to come home and bust their hump in the garden doing all of this work as well. To make it as easy as possible, there are groups like the Food is Free Project that are demonstrating how to build a raising or a raised wicking bed and making it really as easy as possible for people to get that foot in the door. And for those who aren't lucky enough to be situated in a community with something like the Food is Free Project, they also, of course, make some of these materials available online for people to learn from and attempt themselves. More information about the Food is Free Project and the, and the raised wicking beds can be found at the Food is Free Project website, which I'll link up in the show notes so that you can go and take a look at that. But the point of today's podcast is not to introduce specific techniques or, or ideas or processes, which, as I say, are widely available online and which you can explore at your own leisure. And I, I would also feel somewhat hypocritical lecturing people about how to go about doing this without really doing it myself. We do have some um, some potted, uh, pots in the back where we grow some herbs and things, but really, I haven't really committed myself to practicing this solution, which really is a solution. It really is one way that we can start to detach ourselves from the overall system of control, which of course depends on the fundamental building blocks of our life, our food. So in an effort to practice what I preach, to put my money where my mouth is, or however you want to phrase it, I am committing myself this year, once the uh, Jack Frost releases his, uh, his icy grip on the lands of the rising sun, to actually committing myself to getting my hands dirty, to growing something in my backyard that my my family is going to eat this year. And of course, I will be updating you with that throughout the year um, so that you can see not only my successes, but maybe my failures as well. As I say, I'm not particularly gifted or knowledgeable when it comes to this, so I'm going to be trial and erroring. But that is the only way forward. We have to try. We have to perhaps fail, but at any rate, we have to try in order to get where we want to go. And once again, we can get overwhelmed by the psychology, the, the naysayers who say, oh, you know, it's not going to transform the world overnight, so it's not worth doing. That is hogwash. We have to we have to decry those voices that would hold us back from this by saying that it has to be an all or nothing, 100% or 0% proposition. Of course it does not. Every baby step along the way towards detaching ourselves from that global industrial food production system is a step in the right direction. And until we recognize that these seemingly inconsequential, seemingly tiny actions, planting something in your backyard, until we see these actions as the truly revolutionary actions, we will never understand what revolution really is or what it really means. So... In order to articulate this, I hope, motivational message better than I think I ever could, I'm going to lead, leave the final words of today's podcast to Joel Salatin in that lecture, Folks, This Ain't Normal. So uh, once again, I'll direct you to the full lecture, of course, available from the link in the show notes at CorbettReport.com. That's going to do it for this week. I am, of course, your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. I thank you for joining me for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast and I'm looking forward to talking to you again real soon. 
Uh, I mean, you've heard some stuff here tonight. You know, some of you are going to go over here and, and think about some of these things. And some of it's daunting. It scares you. It's going to take time. It's going to be a new, you know, journey into a, into a, you know, in a wild beyond that we're not familiar with. And, and it scares us because we have this voice in the back of our head, you know, probably grandma, some matriarch, you know, saying, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing. Well. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. You know what? <laughs> She's wrong. The truth is, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. We're coming up on Thanksgiving next week. See my turkey tie? Okay. Coming up on Thanksgiving. All right. Next week, you're going to be with the whole fam damnly, right? I mean, you know, the, the, all, you know, crazy Uncle John and the whole, okay. All right. So you're going to be there, and there's going to be the newest little addition to the family, you know, little Janie, maybe seven months, right? She's crawling around on the floor, and everybody's talking, you know, all the adults. And Janie comes up here to the chair. She gets a hold of it. She pulls herself up, you know, and she totters. She looks around terrified, you know. Suddenly, probably her mother sees her, and she says, look, Janie's, Janie's starting to walk. You know, look, it's the first time she's pulling. You know, and all everybody, all eyes, you know, fixed on Janie, and they all go nuts. She realizes she's the center of attention. She smiles real big, and suddenly she loses her focus and her grip, and she falls plop down in her diaper. Now, what does everybody do? No, they don't. They come around and they say, well, Janie, if you can't walk any better than that, just quit. <laughs> no, we can't say, oh, Janie, try again. Get up here and walk, Melina. But what happens is as we become adults, we have this voice. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's stigmatizing. It makes us timid about trying something new lest we fail. And so what I want you to do is go away tonight. I want you to think about when, when, when this seems daunting and, oh, no, I don't know if I can go to farmers. Oh, I don't know. I might go to a farm. I've never been to a farm. I mean, I don't know what's going on on a farm. You know? uh, and if all this sounds intimidating, all right, look, look in the mirror, hike up your diaper and say, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. Because that's the way innovation happens. That's the way progress happens. It is that disturbance of plopping on the diaper that incentivizes and creates the opportunity for the next innovative thing. So will you do that for me? Now may all your carrots grow long and straight. May tomato blight infect somebody else's tomatoes. May the radishes be large and not pithy. May all of your culinary experiments be delectably palatable. May the rain fall gently on your fields. The wind be always back your back and your children rise up and call you blessed. And may we all make this a better world than we inherited. Thank you so much for letting me be here. Hello friends, James Corbett here in the Japanese equivalent of that industrial food mecca, the supermarket. And uh, don't worry, my wife and I do not buy much of our food here at the supermarket. We are members of a green cooperative that I've talked about before that has all organic, non-GMO foods that does radiation testing on all their food products. So that's where we source most of our food from, but occasionally we do go here. And I brought you here today to show you something specific, namely, ooh, these apples. Why am I in the apple, the fresh produce section of the industrial? industrial food mecca. Well, actually, it's because there was a recent uh, tweet by at Gruff Diver on Twitter that made an excellent point that uh, the 
A Corbett Report membership costs 100 Japanese yen a month. Of course, there are 300 and 500 yen a month options also, as well as annual options, which uh, you can choose which one you like. But for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, you can get full membership to the Corbett Report website, including access to the weekly subscriber newsletter, the monthly subscriber-only video, and a login and password for the website so you can join our open-source investigations and leave your own comments and links and all of that. Just to put that number in perspective, here we have these lovely, probably uh, non-organic, non-GMO-filled, uh, horrible apples. But you see the prices here. The expensive gift-type apples, 178 yen, down to 98 yen for an apple. So for as little as one apple a month, you can be a Corporate Report subscriber. That's, I think, a pretty reasonable thing to ask. And uh, if an apple a day can keep the doctor away, then perhaps one a month can help the alternative media continue to grow. So I do appreciate all the subscribers out there, and if you haven't thought about it yet, maybe you should. Please go to CorporateReport.com membership for more details. I'm James Corbett at CorbettReport.com. Talk to you again real soon.